Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, Welcome, oddities, to another oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. It means so much. This is an educational show, and I'm just trying to teach you guys things that I didn't learn in school, and I'm not a highly educated person by any means, but I've been self-educating for quite a while, and I know many of you are doing the same thing and have done the same thing, and so I think it's very important that we learn these things we're not going to hear in mainstream media and in the mainstream education system, and we share them with each other, and we also share them with the world. Now, this week's going to be a continuation of the Those We Don't Speak of series. This is going to be number eight, believe it or not. I've got good feedback from this series, so I want to continue it. And as I've said before, it's just going to keep going on and on and on, Lord willing, because there's so much information to share, so much hidden information and information that's just not talked about very much So I think that it needs to get out there, and the more informed people are on these subjects, the better they'll be able to understand the world we live in and possibly make future decisions, important future decisions. And it's it's very important to know who's in charge and who's pulling the strings behind the scenes of politics and business and different things like that. And so why is those we don't speak of so important? Well, for one, we have American politicians, presidents even, who are loyal to foreign nations and not the citizens of this foreign country that we're talking about, mind you, but GovCorp of this foreign country, the powerful members of the corporations and government and banking of this other nation, and people who live in other parts of the world who are also loyal to this nation. It's almost a worship of dirt and DNA. And so, I think that we need to understand where that loyalty lies, especially when we talk about our politicians and these big businessmen like, oh, say, Soros, or say, BlackRock's Larry Fink, 
or even Mark Zuckerberg, or how about Jeff Bezos? All these people that are pulling the strings behind the scenes, making huge decisions that affect millions of us. So I think it's time to dive a little bit deeper into this whole thing. And I think that if we understand the culture, that's one thing that's been hidden from us as the culture of those we don't speak of, because if we're not born into it, we really don't understand it. And there are people who are born into it who really don't even understand it. So I think that a lot of the propaganda is not for just us, if you want to call us Gentiles, just non-Jews. The propaganda is also for the Jews, the regular Jews, because it's got to keep them divided in thinking that the world's out to get them. So they put up with all this crap that their leaders are doing, and also so they will blindly defend whatever happens, whatever their leaders are doing, whatever policies are implemented, and push back against anyone calling attention to it and trying to say that it's hate speech or it's anti-Semitic. So the propaganda is for Jews just as much as it's for us, and so I think we need to understand that and understand the history. History is so important to understand because we don't want to repeat it, and we repeat history constantly. But also it helps us to understand the present. You really cannot understand the present without understanding the past. And it also helps us to understand what the future may be leading to. Now we've got very important people in the government like Pelosi and Schumer who can stand before the liberal J Street, the liberal Jewish lobby, or stand before APAC, the more conservative Jewish lobby, And all of the top Democrats, no matter what these Republicans say, the Mark Levins and the people like that, are trying to convince you that, oh, the Democrats hate Jews, ah, the Democrats hate Israel. Well, then why do they all speak before APAC? All the top ones do. And you've got even the current president who said a couple of different times, maybe more, that he is a Zionist. And he spoke before all these organizations. And he's won awards from the Zionist Organization of America. And, of course, Trump has done the same, and he, his administration was filled with Zionists, and so is the Biden administration, even more so. So I think we have to understand that a lot of these powerful people do not have our best interests in mind. But don't get me wrong, they don't have the average Israeli citizen's best interests in mind either. This is a GovCorp situation. This is a protectionist racket to prop up the businessmen and the politicians and the very important people in their government and in their society and the people that are connected to their society. And one thing you have to hand it to them is the Zionists, they stick together. Even if they're miles and miles, worlds apart, they stick together because they have that dirt and DNA in common, or at least think they do, and it's become so important to them that they worship it. And so they will do anything, absolutely anything, to keep the power, and they're trying to manifest something. And I think we're going to be talking about that. I think that's one of the most important things we can talk about is what is trying to be manifested. And I think there is a global conspiracy in this because it's the culture that comes from you know, several hundred years back that's been taught. So let's go ahead and get into this episode, and maybe I can further explain some of the things that I'm talking about here. Now, the first thing I want to look at, I think it's really important because we are, you know, in in American media, we are kind of directed to believe that everything is so black and white, right? The easier things are presented, the easier we are to be controlled. 
and they don't want citizens actually looking past the first couple of layers of anything. They just want us to, you know, react emotionally. So that's what we're kind of pushed to do. And when they say conservative, you know, we, if we're conservative, we stick to the conservative side and we hate the liberal side and vice versa. And so conservatives would have you believe really, and I think a lot of the average conservatives do believe this, that when we're talking about Israel, we're talking about conservatism and how we've got to protect those conservatives and, you know, the traditionalists and this, that, and the other. And I think that it's very important to really look at what is believed by groups before we are convinced by our pastors and our politicians to blindly support them. So here we have from the JewishJournal.com, conservative Judaism should clarify it's liberal. Conservative Judaism has always been a curious moniker for the middle movement in American Jewish life. For more than a century, it followed the moderate path of tradition and change alongside traditionalist, orthodox, and progressive reform. But in recent years, the movement has lunged leftward, both religiously and politically, and the name is no longer simply clumsy. Increasingly, left-of-center Jews who use the name are unwittingly, I hope, suggesting right-of-center Jews support liberal positions, and that's not fair. The Talmud says a person cannot be wise unless his inside matches his outside. Out of respect for genuine conservative Jews, conservative Jews need a new name and fast. Case in point, the kerfuffle over President-elect Donald Trump's advisor Steve Bannon and his supposed anti-Semitism, which is a joke. I mean, Steve Bannon has also spoken at the Zionist Organization of America. It's ridiculous to say that that administration was anti-Jew, anti-Israel. It's absolutely asinine. But let's read on. The six most important organizations in American Jewry's middle movement put out a press release Saturday condemning Bannon's ideas as antithetical to the values of our country and calling upon Trump to rescind Bannon's nomination. Actually, Bannon's position requires neither nomination nor confirmation. Most true Jewish conservatives and even some liberals have largely defended Bannon as the evidence of his anti-Semitism is shockingly thin. The derogatory comments invoked by his angry ex-wife did not seem anti-Semitic to the only independent person who witnessed any of them. A writer for Tablet Magazine said she could find only one relevant statement suggesting anti-Semitism, a supposed six-word quote Bannon gave to a reporter at a Republican National Convention regarding his website, Breitbart News. We're the platform of the alt-right. That was the quote. And that is a joke, too. Of course, Breitbart is Zionist, but we'll go on. That quote isn't credible, either. It appeared in Mother Jones magazine, published by the far-left Foundation for National Progress. Tellingly, propagandist extraordinaire Sarah Posner did not publish the supposed quote for five weeks, revealing it only after the most contentious presidential election in American history heated up. She has yet to produce a recording or other independent verification of the quotes, which Bannon denies. As for the substance of the complaint... Liberal darling Jeff Bezos provides a bigger platform to more hateful and pernicious things than Bannon does. Now, I'm not trying to make Bannon look good or anything like that. I don't trust the guy, but let's read on. Yet, people unfamiliar with the inner workings of the American Jewish community could reasonably conclude that Jewish conservatives think Bannon is a Jew hater, based on the coverage of Saturday's statement. 
Listen to this. Most American Christians and many Jews can hardly differentiate Reform Judaism from conservative Judaism any better than the average Jew can distinguish Methodists from Presbyterians, which is not at all. Yet the movement's press release contained no disclaimer that conservative Judaism is not politically conservative, and the coverage in the Jewish dailies, the Haaretz, the Jerusalem Post, and the Times of Israel said nothing to disabuse people who might reasonably assume conservative Judaism is conservative. Only the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the JTA, could be bothered to write appropriately. Despite what its name suggests, conservative Judaism is a centrist denomination, positioned between the stringently traditional orthodox and the religiously and politically liberal reform Judaism. Centrist is accurate only in a strictly spatial sense. In 2016, conservative Judaism is unabashedly liberal, both politically and religiously. Members include Elena Kagan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Debbie Washerman Schultz. It has held the line on intermarriage and patrilineal descent so far, but otherwise the practical differences from Reform Judaism are more sociological than theological or political. Both movements support abortion rights, gun control, welcoming Syrian refugees, higher minimum wages, the fight against climate change, citizenship for illegal immigrants, same-sex marriage, and more. By continuing to call themselves conservative, even if they keep using a capital C, the movement at best confuses people. Someone who only hears the name of this list of influential conservative Jews would think it's about the people who wrote Saturday's release, but those who read it would understand it's about Republicans and Libertarians who happen to be Jewish. One rabbi has actually bemoaned that the name of his religious movement has been appropriated by the political conservatives. It's his movement that's guilty of what the sages condemned as namely stealing someone's knowledge by misleading people about yourself. Journalists and others who write and speak about American Judaism would be relieved by a name change. Ron Campius, who covers American politics for the Jewish Telegraph Agency, told me that the distinction between small-c conservative Jews and capital-c conservative Jews was once merely annoying. But as conservative Judaism veered to the left politically, the two connotations of the word now not only mean different things, they are sometimes in opposition. The rebranding idea is not new to the movement, but the day is short and the work is great. Until it picks a new appellation... Under consideration are covenantal Judaism, dynamic Judaism, and Zionist-tinged Maserati Judaism. The people calling themselves conservative Jews must clarify every single time they speak out in their movement's name they do not consider themselves conservative. And that was from David Benkoff. He's a senior political analyst for The Daily Caller. So I think it's important to understand for especially the older people who just blindly defend anything that the Israeli government does. And these are the same kind of people that are just as quick to use the anti-Semitic label as liberals are to use the racist term when you disagree with them. Or you bring up some things that they're, the people they like are doing that is wrong. So what do you do as an American and someone who is somewhat conservative or traditional? If you support the reform or the conservative sect, you're actually supporting very liberal values. If you support 
the Orthodox sects, well, you're getting into Kabbalah and mysticism and thinking that the Moshiach or the Messiah could be a fallen angel named Metatron or he could be Rabbi Schneerson or, God forbid, Shabtai Zvi. I mean, it's just crazy. You know, they don't believe that the Bible says what it means and every verse could have up to 70 meanings. So I think that people really need to find out what the hell they are supporting and they won't. They won't. And that's why I'm doing this show. So a few people actually will look deeper into these things. Now, we'll say I wasn't uh, looking for this, but it just popped up when I was looking up conservative Judaism. And the Jewish Telegraphic Agency pulled this up. And this was this month, actually, March 9th. An investigation into the conservative youth group identifies hypersexualized culture. This is by Asaf Eli Shalev. An investigation into sexual abuse and misconduct in the conservative movement's youth group programs over the past seven decades identified an overly sexualized culture and collected accounts of alleged abuse from 40 victims. Most of the allegations included in the investigation took place between 1987 and 2019 in the New York City area, and the alleged perpetrators are no longer affiliated with the youth group, according to the report. The investigation commissioned by the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism the movement's umbrella organization for congregations, was based on documents and interviews with the victims. It turned up allegations of wrongful sexual contact, reports of grooming, reports of an over-sexualized culture, and other boundary-crossing behaviors at programs run by the movement's youth group, United Synagogue Youth, known as USY. The conservatives' movement network of Rama camps is not under the synagogue's auspices. One section of the 20-page report is dedicated to the culture of sexualization within the conservative movement's youth programs and includes reports of inappropriate games and pressure on teens to engage in sexual activity with one another. The report comes amid a time of reckoning over child sexual abuse in the Jewish world. It is the latest in a series of similar investigations commissioned by major Jewish religious organizations that examine sexual misconduct against teens in Jewish youth movements, camps, schools, and other institutions. The report urges USCJ to keep its current practices around protecting children in place. It also urges the organization to improve its implementation of safety measures and record-keeping to advance a healthier culture for teens. The investigation did not corroborate the allegations and did not discover widespread or systematic abuse, according to the report, which was written by UCSJ and approved by Sarah Worley, the attorney hired to gather information and draft recommendations. No one implicated in the investigation currently works or volunteers for USCJ, according to Worley's investigation. Every adult accused of sexual misconduct has been barred from future participation. The report doesn't name anyone, victim or perpetrator. At least one former employee of the youth group, former USY Nassau County Long Island Divisional Director Ed Ward, is the subject of multiple lawsuits accusing him of sexual abuse of multiple teens. He worked for USCJ-affiliated synagogue until 2020. So it goes on a little bit more, and it's got a link by the same author, it says, Reform Movement's longtime youth director named in a landmark report on sexual misconduct in youth programs. 
So this was 2022. The last of the three investigations into sexual misconduct in the reform movement concluded Thursday with the release of a report focused on failures in programs serving youth. Four leaders or former leaders in the movement were named, including its longtime youth director. Investigations hired by the Union for Reform Judaism, which represents 831 congregations belonging to the largest denominations of American Jews, learned of dozens of incidents of sexual misconduct, including 17 involving inappropriate behavior of adults towards minors that took place over the last 50 years. So this is the reform movement, and the other was the conservative movement. So this is something they both have in common as well. Over this period, more than 500,000 minors participated in reform programs, such as overnight summer camps, conferences, Israel trips, and NFTY, the Reform Youth Movement. Allegations shared with the investigators range from verbal sexual harassment and unwelcome sexual advances to sexual touching and sexual assault. It also says the report also found that the movement had knowingly hired clergy who had been fired from congregations for sexual misconduct, but not out of a desire to shield rabbis from accountability. Rather, these employment decisions resulted from sincerely held beliefs in redemption and the process of teshuva. The report says referring to a Jewish concept akin to restorative justice. Regardless of the intent of leaders, a lack of transparency about the handling of allegations has helped foster mistrust in reform institutions, the report adds. So, obviously, any time, no matter if it's religious or secular, and there's a bunch of children involved, there's going to be abuse. But this is absolutely insane that this kind of stuff goes on so much. And, of course, there is a documentary about this sexual abuse amongst the Orthodox Jews. I haven't watched it yet, but I've read a couple of reviews of it and saw a clip of it. You don't really want to watch something like that, and you don't want to have to talk about it, but I probably will just so we can cover it on the show and learn from it. But we'll see. Now, I wanted to get into mysticism a little bit, and we could go with so many different people. But I think that, as far as I can tell, in the modern era... The main mystic, he's had, I believe, the most influence over Judaism as a whole, but especially mysticism and Kabbalah, is one Isaac Luria. And we're going to read a little bit about him. Now, from myjewishlearning.com, Isaac Luria and the Kabbalah in Safed. Now, If it's pronounced differently, I'm sorry, but I did look it up, and it said it was pronounced Safed. After the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, the center of Kabbalistic study moved to the town of Safed in northern Palestine. In 1492, the Jews of Spain were expelled by royal decree. Five years later, the Jews of Portugal faced a similar fate. It is hard to overestimate the impact of this disruption. Iberian Jewry had lived in comparative peace with its Muslim and Christian neighbors for hundreds of years. These were the most stable and prosperous Jewish communities since the glory days of Judah and Israel. Suddenly, they were swept into exile like every Jewish community in history before them. The Sephardic Jews who were forced to leave the Iberian Peninsula could carry little in the way of concrete riches, 
but the treasure of intellectual achievement they took with them was immense. In no field was this truer than in the realm of Jewish mysticism, and the results of that involuntary exodus could be seen almost immediately. By the 16th century, the Zohar was an integral part of Jewish religious thought, and Kabbalistic thinking was becoming part of the mainstream. I think that's important to understand for current times. Spurred by the dispersion of its principal adherents, new intellectual centers sprang up in Italy, Turkey, and most of all, Safed in Palestine. This is products of Safed. It was in Safed that Moses Cordovero authored a definitive commentary on the Zohar. It was in Safed that Joseph Caro authored the Shulchan Aruch, the definitive code of Jewish law. And it was in Safed that the single most influential thinker in all of medieval Jewish mysticism emerged. Rabbi Isaac Luria, who lived from 1534 to 1572, also known by the acronym Ari the Lion. Safed was and is a small town in Galilee, an unlikely place to serve as a locus for some of the finest Jewish minds of the 16th century. But through a complicated series of circumstances, that is precisely what it was. Moses Cordovero had already established himself there, writing his many important Kabbalistic works, and Joseph Caro had also settled in Safed before Luria arrived. I'm telling you this because I think it's very important that you understand what Lurianic Kabbalah teaches. Of course, we can't go into extreme detail here, but I think you can at least understand the teaching of the beginning of everything and the fall. Luria taught his esoteric thought to a dozen or so followers before his death at 38 in an epidemic. Rabbi Hayim Vital, his amanuensis, or one who dictated Luria's writings, recorded his ideas, in turn taught them to a select few, in keeping with Luria's wishes that they were not to be disseminated to the masses. But by the 17th century, Luria's ideas and unique vocabulary in which they were expressed had not only spread throughout European Jewry, they had become a central pillar of traditional Jewish thought, a position they occupy to this day. Now, again, I think it's very important to understand how they see things. You know, when you go to church, when you hear about Israel on the news, all you hear about, well, in church, you just get that Old Testament, New Testament idea. You don't get anything that's happened since then. And then with the news, you just get what they want you to hear, what the power players want you to hear. So I think this helps us to understand that even the non-religious Jews of today were influenced by this Lurianic Kabbalah and, and by these teachings of this rabbi. Professor Gershom Sholem argues that Luria and his followers devised a religious ideology that was a direct response to the affiliations of the Jewish people of the time. The exile of the Iberian Jewry was no less a tragedy than the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. An answer was needed to the question of the existence of the evil in the world, the sort of evil that had forced thousands of Jews to convert to Christianity at sword point, killed countless thousands of other Jews, and finally driven the Iberian Jews into exile. Of course, you never get any detail in that, and I think that if we look even to some Jewish writers, you'll see that oftentimes these horrible expulsions 
were because the upper level Jews had gotten too close to the king and become too comfortable and started really moving in on the king or the monarch's territory. And that's happened time and time and time again. You've heard of court Jews. That's the truth. And again, you can read that in secular writings. You can read that in pro-Zionist writers. You can read that in the books of anti-Zionist writers as well. Of course, that doesn't make it right. The idea of Muranos and conversos forcing someone to convert to a religion that is supposed to be about love and peace is absolutely ridiculous. It's the antithesis of what real Christianity is supposed to be. And of course, you can never, I don't believe, force someone to convert. It would never work. So no wonder these Muranos and conversos started to look into other belief systems and get crazier and crazier with their own beliefs. And a lot of them flocked to Shabbatai V, who come along a little bit later than Luria. But I think Luria was a big influence on Shabbatai V, And we'll look at Zvi later on. And if any of you guys are interested, I did a 30-minute show for patrons only months ago on Shabbatai V. It's kind of a cookie-cutter history of him that we'll definitely get into in more detail eventually. But I think it's a it's a good 30 minutes of solid information because half the world's Jews followed Shabbatai V. And while he actually was teaching that basically he was the new Messiah and to basically do opposite what the teachings of Judaism had taught so far, just to you know get rid of the laws, do what you want. Basically, he was Aleister Crowley before Crowley. And then after him, Jacob Frank came on the scene and was said to be, you know, he believed he was the reincarnation of Shabbatai Zvi. But uh, just to finish this up quickly about Zvi, I said that half the world's Jews followed him, and it wasn't just a matter of following him from afar. They would get rid of their belongings, and they flocked to find him. It was insane when you really start to read that history. But anyway... Let's look back into this here. The key concepts of Lurianic Kabbalah are the tzim-tzim, contraction and the shattering of the vessels. Luria posits a story of creation in which creation is essentially a negative act in which the Ein Sof, which they call God's essential self, must bring into an empty space into which creation can occur. The Almighty was everywhere, only by contracting into itself, like a man inhaling in order to let someone pass in a narrow corridor, could the Godhead create an empty space, or the Tahiru, Aramaic for empty, in which the creation could occur. God retracts a part of the eternal being into the Godhead itself in order to allow such a space to exist, a sort of exile. So creation begins with divine exile. After the Zimzum, a stream of divine light flowed from the Godhead into the empty space the Almighty had created, taking the shape of the Sephirot in Adam Kadmon, or primal man. The light flowed from Adam Kadmon out of his eyes, nose, and mouth, creating the vessels that were eternal shapes of the Sephirot. But the vessels were too fragile to contain such a powerful divine light. The upper three vessels were damaged. The lower seven were shattered and fell. 
Thus, the Teheru became divided into the upper and lower worlds, a product of the Shevara, or shattering. And so evil came into the world through a violent separation between those elements that had taken part in the act of creation and others that had willfully resisted, contributing to the shattering of the vessels. The elements that had fought against the creation were the nascent powers of evil, but because they opposed creation, they lacked the power to survive. They need access to the divine light and continue to exist in the world only to the extent that they can gather the holy sparks that fell when the Shevra took place. Yeah. So this is how the world was formed and why the world fell. And all this divine light is being regathered basically to put God back together, if you will. Uh, They believe that God is wholly unknowable. Now, this is very, very important, and many of you have heard me use the phrase tikkun olam. This is where it comes from, the repairing of the world. This is repairing the world. Joseph Don has noted that the genius of Lurianic Kabbalah is the way in which it unites Jewish mysticism and Jewish ethics. That unification occurs here in the concept of the way in which mankind can undo the damage done in the creation and can repair the Shevara through the Tikkun Olam, again, repairing of the world. Now, many Jews, even secular Jews, believe that they are here to repair the world, and that could be in whatever way they deem fit. For Luria and his followers... Tikkun had a very specific meaning. Every time that a human performs a mitzvah, a commandment, she raises one of the holy sparks out of the hands of the forces of evil and restores it to the upper world. Conversely, every time that a human sins, a divine spark plunges down. The day will come, if all do their part, when the entire remaining supply of divine light will be restored to the upper world. Without access to the divine light, Evil will be unable to survive and will crumble away to dust. For Luria and his followers, the commandment of Tikkun Olam, repairing the world, takes on a highly specific meaning in which it is through Jewish ritual life that we contribute to the reversal of the shattering of the vessels, ward off powers of evil, and pave the way of redemption. Ethical behavior, following the mitzvah, no matter how seemingly trivial, takes on a new cosmic significance. Forget to say the blessing over bread? You have contributed to universal evil. Put up a mezuzah on the door of your new house? You have helped to redeem the entire world. Yeah, you're not going to learn any of this stuff in church, guys. I'll just tell you that right now. Clearly, the act of repairing the world is arrogated to the Jewish people exclusively in this system. At first, God was hoping that Adam would be a perfect human being and therefore would complete the redemption by himself. But Adam's sin shook down more of the sparks. When God chose the Jewish nation and they heard the revelation at Sinai, it became their task to restore the world. The responsibility placed on the Jewish people is a collective one under Luria's terms. The Jewish people should be seen as a fighting army under siege. No days off. No respite, a hard battle to live by the commandments and to repair the world. If one falters, others must take up his burden. Consequently, 
Lurianic thinking combines a radical understanding of God and creation with a profoundly conservative attitude towards Jewish observance, but it also reanimates the daily routine of observing the mitzvot, giving them a new and more intense significance than ever before. One can easily see how appealing this notion that by merely fulfilling the mitzvot, one could do battle against evil must have been to the persecuted, weary Jews of Luria's time. That was from, it said it was reprinted with permission from Essential Judaism by George Robinson. So I think understanding Lurianic Kabbalah, its origins there, will help us to understand kind of where a lot of this mysticism and a lot of these ideas of repairing the world are coming from. We're going to get a lot more into mysticism as we go in this series because it's very important, and I don't think you can separate it from even secular Judaism in a way because it was just part of their history and part of their beliefs. I don't think you could get wholly away from it. Now, that being said, not all of this is negative or bad by any means, but I think you have to think about repairing the world and what that means to you And if repairing the world means the same to these power players as it means to us, I don't think that it's the same. And so I think that's why we need to understand this. And then we go back to all the very important Jewish appointees in business and government and how they're kind of ruling our world. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to see what's going on. And I think that many of us can agree that what we're being pushed into is not good. And a lot of what Kabbalah talks about as well is order and chaos. And they really believe it's kind of like an alchemical process that you have to cause this chaos to be able to eventually have order. And you, know, I say their order is not our order. And I believe that we need to understand that, that a lot of these things that are happening are very powerful people, perhaps connected some are definitely connected, maybe not all, but many have the same type of thinking, and they're pushing a world that may be quite unlivable by many of us average people, Jews alike, but these powerful people are trying to make it in their image. They think that they are, in a way, they're playing God by trying to create a new world order, trying to create a great reset, a new normal. So I think all this stuff plays together, and that's why I want to bring this information to you and help you to kind of uh, you know understand it and, and, again, tell other people about it, please. Now, I want to read a little bit because I think this is extremely important. Now, Gershom Sholem was a very important professor at Hebrew University, and, in fact, he was, I believe, their first professor of mysticism. He was a scholar in still to this day looked upon as the scholar of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. And he had an essay called The Messianic Idea in Kabbalism. And we're going to read from that because it explains some things that I think people need to hear. Maybe they won't want to hear it, but they need to hear it. And we'll start right here when he's talking about the masterpiece of Spanish Kabbalism is the Zohar. Of course, the Zohar is the main book in Kabbalism, but there are others as well. The masterpiece of Spanish Kabbalism is the Zohar, which was written in the last quarter of the 13th century in Castile, the central part of Spain. In this book, 
Kabbalah or Kabbalah and Messianism are not yet dovetailed into a genuinely organic whole. On the subject of redemption, we find utterances that give expression in new form and with the addition of interesting details, but without essential change, to the prophecies of the end recorded in the popular apocalyptic literature referred to above. We didn't read that part, but we don't need to. The Zohar follows Talmudic Agadah in seeing redemption not as the product of inward progress in the historical world, but as a supernatural miracle involving the gradual illumination of the world by the light of the Messiah. It begins with an initial gleam and ends with full revelation, the light of the Messiah. At the time when the Holy One, blessed be He, shall set Israel upright and bring them up out of the galut, He will open to them a small and scant window of light, and then He will open another, that is larger, until he will open to them the portals on high to the four directions of the universe. So shall it be with all that the Holy One, blessed be he, does for Israel and for the righteous among them. So shall it be, and not a single instant, for neither does healing come to a sick man at a single instant, but gradually until he is made strong. Now this is Gershom's words here. The Gentiles, who are designated Esau or Edom, however, will suffer the opposite fate. They receive their light in this world at a single stroke, but it will depart from them gradually until Israel shall grow strong and destroy them. And when the spirit of uncleanliness shall pass from the world and the divine light shall shine upon Israel without let or hindrance, all things will return to their proper order, to the state of perfection which prevailed in the Garden of Eden before Adam sinned. The worlds will all be joined one to another, and nothing will separate the Creator from the creature. All will rise upwards by ascents of the Spirit, and creatures will be purified until they behold the Shekinah, eye to eye. Shekinah, Shekinah, I've heard people pronounce that both ways, but it's the female aspect of God. So you see there that it is pretty intense, and people don't want to talk about that. They don't want to have that pointed out for obvious reasons. It's saying that Israel will destroy the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And it talks like they have to do that to become truly liberated. So I guess we're so dirty and horrible that we have to die in order to give them their utopia. It's pretty insane, but this is what those guys teach. Now, you have to understand there are a bunch of different sects that believe this, and they teach the Kabbalah, and they teach the Zohar, and the Sefer Yetzirah, and all that. They're into all this mysticism, and they've built upon it, and built upon it, and built upon it. These are part of their holy books, and when they talk about the Torah, a lot of them are talking about the Zohar and the Sefer Yetzirah. They're not just talking about the first five books of the Bible. They're talking about these different books that have been handed down and the Kabbalah will get into the origins of it eventually. But, you know, it was said that it went way back to like, I think the third century, second or third century. That is not true. And, you know, since then it's come out that no, that was not the case at all. It was like 13th century when it was written and built upon, but yet they still believe that this is one of their holy books. Now I think we'll get into some more strange things that they believe that 
I touched upon when I did the show way back, I don't know, a couple years ago with author Deanna Loper, who wrote that great book, Kabbalah Secrets Christians Need to Know. I really highly recommend that book if you want something that very simply explains Kabbalah, the Zohar, what these messianic types teach. It'll blow your mind. I mean, there's no question. And if you're not familiar with this kind of stuff, some of the things that their authors have written and their rabbis have written over time, and even very recently, it's just hard to believe that it didn't get more attention and it wasn't there wasn't more of an outrage. But again, it's it's a small group of people who were reading this for the most part. And thank God that Deanna Loper kind of saw this stuff taking place somehow and said, you know what, I need to look deeper into this. And she looks into their own books to bring this information about, which is something that I like to do myself because I don't want to hear things secondhand. I like to hear sources, sourced material, and those kinds of things. Now, I want to also point out for the Orthodox Jews and maybe other Jewish sects, I'm not sure, but you know, there's various Orthodox Jews. They don't believe that the Bible is literal, so they have all these different ideas of what it actually means. So, you know, at their yeshivas for their kids, they will teach them the Bible is literal, and then when you start to become an adult, that's when they teach you all these mystical aspects. So it says right here, of course, they call the Bible the Torah, the first five books, and according to the words of the sages, this is also Gershom Sholem. The Torah has 70 aspects, and there are 70 aspects to each and every verse. In truth, therefore, the aspects are infinite. In each generation, one of these aspects is revealed. And so, in our generation, the aspect which the Torah reveals to us concerns matters of redemption. Each and every verse can be understood and explained in reference to redemption. Now, in Rav Berg's book about the Kabbalah, he says this, For the Kabbalists, the stories of the Bible are merely the outer covering under which exalted mysteries are concealed. They are only the garment for the body of the inner meaning. Kabbalah seeks to imbue the commandments of the laws of the Bible with their true hidden spirit. Indeed, in the view of the Zohar, the tales and parables of the Bible are symbolic reflections of the inner metaphysical realm through which one could perceive the hidden divine mysteries of our universe. Rav Shimon berates those who takes these simple tales as relating only to incidents in the lives of individuals or nations. Now, Rabbi Shimon, uh, some say Simeon, he was a very famous rabbi, probably the most famous rabbi ever, said to have written parts of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, as well as the writer of the Zohar. Now, there's a whole legend about he and his son hiding in a cave for 10 or 12 years or something like that and, and writing the Zohar. But it was actually a Spanish rabbi named Moses de Leon who wrote the Zohar. And he wrote it about, I think, a 1,000 years later after Shimon passed away. Now, this Shimon guy is very, very venerated. And once a year, they have a tradition. I think it's a holiday called Lag Beomer, if I'm not mistaken. And they thousands of people go to his grave, thousands of people. And they give their sons their first haircut at his gravesite. And allegedly, when he died, 
the you know there was thunder and lightning and like a voice spoke out blessed be he almost like he was a savior himself so there's a whole legend around that and that holiday is on the 33rd day of the Jewish month so some people think that he is indeed the inspiration for the 33rd degree in Scottish Rite Freemasonry and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he is mentioned in Morals and Dogma a couple of times at least, maybe more, by Albert Pike. Now, this is what Shimon said about the Bible. Woe unto the man who says the Torah merely presents narratives and mundane matters. For if it is the nature of the Bible that it only deals with the simple matters, we, in our day, could compile a superior version If the Bible comes just to inform us of everyday things, then there are, in the possession of the rulers of the world, books of greater quality, and from these we could copy and compose a Bible. However, the uniqueness of the Bible lies in the fact that each word contains supernal matters and profound secrets. When the angels descend, they clothe themselves in earthly garments, without which they could not exist in this world nor could it bear to coexist with them if they were not thus clothed. If this is so with the angels, then how much more must it be true of the Bible, inasmuch as the angels were created from the Bible and all the worlds, the Bible through which all are sustained? The world could not endure the Bible had she not clothed herself in the garments of this world, tales and narratives, in parentheses, He says she there, bringing back in that Shekinah, that Shekinah, the feminine aspect of God. You see that a lot in the Zohar. He goes on, Tales related in the Bible are merely the Bible's outer garments. One who considers the outer garments as the Bible itself, and no more, is a simpleton, and will not merit a portion in the world to come. King David said, Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things from your Bible. Psalms 119, verse 18, meaning that one should perceive that which lies beneath the outer garment of the Bible. The clothes man wears are the most visible part of him. Fools, on seeing a well-dressed man, do not see any further and judge him simply on the basis of his beautiful clothes. They see the attire as a reflection of the physical individual and the physical appearance as a reflection of the soul itself. And finishing up, So it is with the Bible, its narrations relating to the mundane things of the world are but the garments that clothe the body of the Bible. The body of the Bible consists of its precepts. Foolish people see the outer garment, the narrations of the Bible, and ignore that which lies beneath this outer garment. Those who understand more see the body beneath the garment. But the truly wise, however, those who serve the supernal king, and who stood on Mount Sinai, will penetrate to the soul of the Bible, which is the essence of the entire Bible itself. Now, I thought that was interesting that they mentioned the Bible in here so many times because usually it said Torah. Now, it says Torah the very first time, then all the other times it mentions the Bible. And remember I said that they consider Torah much more than just the first five books of the Bible. And, of course, I don't think they believe in the New Testament whatsoever. So I thought that was something to mention. Now, one more thing before we get out of here that I want to talk about that we'll get into a little bit more probably on another episode. 
In another book, this is the Zohar. It's just a, one of the versions of the Zohar. And it says here, let's see. Despite Moses' critical attitude toward the effects of philosophic rationalism, the Zohar theology is influenced by philosophy. Kabbalah grew out of philosophy, or as some Kabbalists would say, outgrew it. Their heads reached the point where our feet stand. Kabbalists drew on Jewish, Neoplatonic, and Aristotelian teaching, but were not conformed to it. Their name for the ultimate reality of God is Einsof, the infinite. Einsof is inaccessible to thought and has no attributes. This accords with Avicenna's and Maimonides' conception. In the Zohar, however, Einsof is rarely mentioned. The focus of the theological discussion is the Sephirot, the manifestations of Einsof, its mystical attributes. It's, God is it's. Here, God thinks, feels, responds, and is affected by the human realm. He and she compromise the divine androgen. Their romantic and sexual relationship is one of the most striking features of the Zohar. Though ultimately God is infinite and indescribable, the Sephirot are real from our perspective. They provide the human being with a way to know the unknowable. Through these gates, these spheres on high, the Blessed Holy One becomes known. Were it not so, no one could commune with him. And it ends with, the human need to contact God informs the Zohar's theology. So I think that we need to take that into consideration as well. This kind of um, idea of God who is wholly unknowable, I think you have to think about that. And also with, I think I mentioned it before, gathering of the sparks, this Lurianic idea of Kabbalah, it's almost as if God has to have us, and he needs us to put the sparks back together to rebuild him. And you kind of see that, again, with the way they view this this Einsoft type of character, or whatever you want to call it. So anyway, I thought I'd leave you with that, something to think about, and we will definitely be diving deeper into this, if it's God's will. Well, guys, that finishes this episode of The Oddcast, and I thank you so much for taking the time to hang with me. That was a lot of reading, wasn't it? I hope that this particular podcast gave you some information that you can really use, and that is my wish for all the podcasts, for it to be kind of an educational show in my own kind of way. Not that I'm an educated person, but I am trying to self-educate, and I know you guys are too, so that means a lot to me that you would take the time to hang out with me and learn as I'm learning. So... Guys, I'm going to get right to it and thank my patrons. And if you want to become a supporter of the show, just go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Ruckus from the Daily Ruckus at alternatecurrentradio.com. Check out his show as well as many others on there. And he is also on TNT Radio as well, doing a fine job. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Mark, from Housatonic Live. Please check out Mark's work on YouTube and his other platforms. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill S., for being a producer of the show. Thank you, John Brisson, from We've Read the Documents. Get on over to Twitter and check out We've Read, and you will see all of John's links. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. 
Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence for being my friend and being a great content provider. Jack was just on Tinfoil Hat, and I was so proud of him. He does a great job. So check him out. Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence on all your fine podcasting platforms as well as his YouTube. Now I want to thank my podcasting family that I did mention a second ago. That's alternatecurrentradio.com. Get on over there and check out all their fine talk and music shows as well. They've got the flagship, the boiler room. Got to check that out. I'm on there sometimes, as well as the Daily Ruckus, the Mystical American Patriot Society, and many others. And also check out Hesher or Brian McLean, the man behind Alternate Current Radio, as well as Spore. Check out his show on TNT Radio as well. It's the Brian McLean Show. They're doing a fine job over there. And I also want to thank Fringe Radio Network for continuing to post the podcast up there. Check out all the fine shows on there as well. I'll be talking to you soon if it's the Lord's will. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.